This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. So glad to have you on a Monday drive. And since it's Monday, good vibes only on the show today. That means I don't want to hear about the Canes losing twice in double overtime over the weekend. Robert, if you get those calls, turn them away or tell them to be optimistic, something to cheer me up because that was a bummer. I do have some news here that will cheer up a bunch of Carolina Panthers fans, I think. Julio Jones himself says he's no longer going to be a member of the Atlanta Falcons. If that's true, he's likely no longer going to be in the NFC South either. Here's Julio taking a phone call live on air from Shannon Sharp on Fox Sports 1 earlier this morning. This is your favorite uncle. What's going on, bro? Man, nothing much. Try to go meet up with my brother. What's happening with you? Man, look, you want to go to the Cowboys, Julio, or you want to stay in Atlanta? <laughs> oh, man, nah, I'm out of there, man. You He's out? out. He's out of there. You. Are you going to... Ideally, where would you like to go? Um, right now, I'm just... I want to win. Okay. Yeah. We don't go to Dallas. If you go to, you ain't winning in Dallas, Julio. But wait, there's more from that phone conversation between Shannon and Julio. That's good enough. Julio, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for calling me back. We on air, but I appreciate you calling me, dog. You know, I know my nephew was going to pick up. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, nah, no. Nah, yeah. I, ain't, I, ain't I ain't going to Dallas, man. I never thought about going to Dallas. Okay. I appreciate that, bro. Enjoy the rest of your day. So he's not going to be a cowboy, but he does one out. I am interested if Julio knew he was on live television. I'd like to imagine he did. Also, I think, see, this is some radio television 101. You got the FCC that regulates things and finds you if you don't follow their rules. I think the first rule you have to follow, if somebody is called on live TV or live radio, you're calling somebody up. You have to let them know that they are live on the air. That's why you don't see any good at pranks anymore for radio, like uh, where you'd call somebody up. and Because now you have to let everybody know, hey, this is being taped for use on radio up front. You can't do it at the end. The thing that stood out to me about that entire clip He was asked where he would like to go. He says, I want to win. Last week, I said the teams that made the most sense for both sides were the Jags, the Jets, and the Chargers in terms of places for Julio to go. However, reality doesn't always match what makes the most sense. I think a lot of us can relate to that. This path makes the most sense for me, and this is how I'm going to plan my career, and I'm going to chart my path this way. And it never goes as planned. It never goes the way we have it planned in our head. Given that Atlanta is hell-bent on getting a first-round pick back, according to Adam Schefter, I think Julio's going to be traded to an established winner. I think Atlanta's going to do right by arguably their greatest player in franchise history. That's why I'm predicting Julio Jones will be a New England Patriot this fall. Now, you might be thinking, Josh, this is not the Patriot way. 
This is not what the Patriots generally do. They're not the team to bring in and trade for these star, flashy, skill position players and give away big assets to do so and to spend a lot of money in free agency. While the Patriots this offseason have been uncharacteristically Patriots, right? They've been uncharacteristic based on what we know or have known about Belichick, Rob Kraft, and this organization for the last two decades. Robert, it also might be a misperception too, right? The Patriots, they don't bring in these star flashy players. This is the same team that brought in Darrell Rivas and brought in Chad Ochocinco, even though that didn't work, and brought in Josh Gordon. I mean, and you look in at 2017, they traded a first and a third round pick for Brandon Cooks, like the same offseason that they spent $40 million guaranteed to get Stephon Gilmore. Like so, they so spend maybe, money when they want to. So perhaps it's a bit of a misnomer. What we do know about New England this offseason is they're wanting to spend money. Jonu Smith, Hunter Henry. They really invested in the defense, picked up some skill position players. In the past, because they haven't had to, Belichick never drafted a quarterback in the first round, regardless of how old Tom was getting. This year they draft a quarterback at the top 15 in Mac Jones. I don't think this is a team that's going to have an issue trading the first-round pick. As you mentioned, to bring in Brandon Cooks, they had to give away a first-round pick. Several times, it became the book on Seattle and New England. They'd have great seasons, and they'd trade out of the first round, trade back into the second round, and get more picks, collect more picks. It goes back to the Scott Fitterer theory, Panthers GM, who believes that there are 16, 17 players that are first-round graded players that you know are first-round guys. There's no way you could grade them as being second-round players. And then there's a larger pool of players with little drop-off that could be taken 20th or could be taken late in the first round. Like Terrace Marshall, for example. Carolina, I think, had him graded as a late first-round guy, and they got him with their... Second round pick after trading back twice. The Patriots, they seem to subscribe to the same theory. That seems to be what they believe in. I don't think they're going to have a problem trading away at first. When they do pick in the first round, they generally don't do a good job in doing so. Go back and look at what they did over the last decade. But they're expecting to pick in the 20s. So this pick is not going to be an incredibly valuable pick anyway. Think of everything that went wrong for the Patriots this past year to get them at number 15. They had more players opt out than anybody. Cam Newton got COVID, which sent their season in a tailspin. They did finish strong at the end of the year. They lost Tom Brady. It's It was all bad for New England. Still finished 7-9. Still middle of the pack, having the 15th pick. They expect to be picking in the 20s. So that pick, whatever you might get, Belichick getting older, approaching 70 years old, how many more years is he going to be at it? I don't think whoever that player is in the late 20s is going to equate to the value of bringing in Julio Jones right now with three years left on his contract. Plus, they've got space for him, both in the depth chart and salary speaking. New England has over $15 million in cap space. New England also lost Julian Edelman this offseason who retired. They've got, looking at their depth chart right now, Nelson Aguilar 
insert the Philadelphia hero catching the baby from the window meme. Jacoby Myers, Wolfpack in the house, am I right? And Kendrick Byrne. Kendrick Bourne. Can't even pronounce his name right. They've got room for him. This is a need for them. It could really help Cam Newton, who's a good friend with Julio, I understand. It could help Mac Jones as well, your young quarterback for years to come. And Atlanta gets the first round draft pick and they get to trade him out of the NFC, out of conference. I think it's a win-win for both sides. That's my official pick. I see the Patriots post-June 1, whether it's a trade announced this week with a post-June 1 designation or after June 1 literally being the team to bring in Julio Jones. Shifting things to the NBA playoffs. I've got an important PSA for everyone. Don't overreact to game one of a best-of-seven series. Carolina Hurricane fans, I'm sure, can relate to this. Another example, the Grizzlies winning in Salt Lake last night. Apparently, the entire Jazz roster felt Donovan Mitchell was going to play in the game and were stunned when he didn't. He was held out. Well, the Jazz just announced Donovan's going to play in game two, and with him being in the lineup, I don't see Memphis taking three more games in this series. I just don't. So generally speaking... I'd encourage you not to overreact to one game. But I do believe Suns-Lakers is an exception to that. Why? Because I told you a week ago before the play-in began that this Lakers team does not look like a title contender. I was affirmed in it, in this belief, watching them beat Golden State just by how tired they were and how they labored through that game and how off they looked. Then they lost yesterday to a team that had an injured Chris Paul... And when Paul came back, he wasn't even giving them anything. And that game was not close by any measure. This is a shell of last year's Lakers team. Last year's Lakers team that won a title had role players who were playoff ready. This year's team does not. Last year's team had Danny Green, Dwight Howard, Rondo. While this year's team has Drummond, Schroeder, and Montrez Harrell. Those are the... uh, rotational pieces here. Last year's group, they'd been there. They'd been to the mountaintop. Now, it's easy to pick fun at Dwight and even Rondo and to a degree Danny Green because he missed that shot in Game 5 of the finals last year. But those are champions. Two out of the three at least are. And Dwight's been, he carried a team to the finals in Orlando back in either 2009-2010. Drummond, how many playoff series he went in Detroit? Schroeder wasn't exactly cooking people in the postseason with OKC in Atlanta. Trez Harrell, we saw what happened to the Clippers last year. Even bigger than that, I think the age the Lakers have. It's not being talked about enough. The age of the Lakers, how noticeable it's become. They are the oldest team in the NBA. And they're coming off the shortest offseason in NBA history. Two months after winning a title, they're running it back and they're the oldest team in the sport. They had an advantage in the bubble that they're not getting this time around, an advantage that's pretty clear for a team that's aging that they didn't have to travel anywhere last year. That helps the older teams. Anytime you talk to an athlete, an ex-athlete, who played college ball or pro ball, and you ask them what was the hardest thing to do playing game to game, to be consistent. They tell you, recovering, especially when you have to travel. When you have to travel, that's the hardest thing 
to make sure your body's where it needs to be. And in the playoffs, the Lakers this year, they're having to travel. They're going to have to play more games away from Staples as far as the series goes, considering they're a seven seed going up against a number two seed. I think Phoenix is going to win this series. I think they got an advantage in the bubble and that they didn't have to travel at all. They no longer have that as the oldest team coming off the shortest offseason ever. Plus, Anthony Davis and LeBron are not healthy. LeBron, you could see it. His minutes are being restricted in a way they generally are not in the playoffs. They He is shrinking against smaller players in a way that's strange. He doesn't seem to trust his ankle that he banged up, really his lower body altogether, which is so important for LeBron to be able to do the things that he's done his entire career. Anthony Davis, meanwhile, this is a stat from Haberstro from Meadowlark Media, Tom Haberstro, Wake Forest grad, by the way. Since returning from an Achilles injury, Anthony Davis this year, 10 of 54 from three-point range. That's not even 20%. Many of those threes have been left short. It's because he's injured. LeBron and AD. The supporting cast isn't going to help them as much as last year's team did because this year's team, this this year's supporting cast has not been there and done that like Rondo and Danny Green had. They're old, they're hurt, they're not playoff ready. I think the Phoenix Suns are going to win that series. Turn it up! They came to see us! Let's go! Back to the drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. John Down, who has covered golf for the Winston-Salem Journal since the late 90s, has encountered all of the game's best in golf, including Phil Mickelson. So I figured who better to have on after Phil won a historic PGA championship, the oldest to ever win a major at 50 years old, then inviting John on. He texted me yesterday. He has a great Phil Mickelson story from a few years ago that I believe... You can find already online. Just look up uh, the Winston-Salem Journal's website, and I just retweeted it on my social media as well. But for those who haven't heard the story that you had in your encounter with Phil Mickelson that speaks to why so many people love the guy, what is your best Phil story? Well, Josh, uh, it's it's kind of pretty crazy, but you know, my father-in-law was a big Phil Mickelson fan, and him and I uh, would go back and forth because, you know, Tiger dominated, so I was kind of in Tiger's camp, and we would have friendly banner back and forth. Well, you know, he late in his life, uh, he was uh, in his 70s, you know, he had leukemia and congestive heart failure, and I was at the Wells Fargo covering that in 2012, and I thought, maybe I'm going to try and get Phil's you know, autograph for my father-in-law, who was actually staying with us that weekend. Um, he lived in Virginia Beach, and so... I decided to kind of, you know, bird dog Phil after he was done playing. And I told him about my, you know, my father-in-law and he signed a you know, piece of paper I had. And then he, you know, went a little step further and kept talking to me and he grabs his hat and says, what's your, what's your father-in-law's name? So I said, well, it's Gene. And he signed it, Gene, best wishes, Phil Mickelson on his hat that he just wore in, his, you know, in, in, in the fourth round. I'm like, well, don't you need that? He goes, you know how many of these I have? And he started laughing, but he just said, you know, good luck with your father-in-law. So fast forward to the next day, Monday morning, he was staying with us, and I told him the story and gave him the hat. And 
our two kids at the time were, I think they were about eight and six, were, you know, chowing down on breakfast. And he, he got that hat, and he wasn't going to have them touch the hat with oatmeal all over their faces. So he he gr- grabbed the hat and went upstairs, and uh, I don't think he ever let the kids ever touch it. But, you know, it, it was a great story. He, you know, he, he passed away, unfortunately, in 2013. But my wife and I were actually away this weekend uh, at Lake Lure and watching it, and it just brought back, you know, a lot of great memories of, uh, you know, her father. And it was just kind of a cool story that, that Phil didn't have to do that, and he did anyway. That's the greatest thing about sports, and I've experienced that in the past month when my dad uh, contracted COVID and he was in the hospital and watched John Means throw a no-hitter, and he sent me a video that went viral and such. But in the last 30 minutes or so, uh, I've been coordinating things with the Orioles to make sure he had uh, they had his home address, and my dad, I FaceTimed him during a commercial break because he said he got a package from the Orioles, and he opened it up. And it's a pit. Uh, it's a ball signed by John Means, and John Means and Caroline Means have been really great with that. But uh, sports can be that connective tissue, man. It's really cool when you see some of these guys that you watch do tremendous things on the links or on the mound or whatever sport you care about, and it becomes a lot more. Uh, it become it becomes more about the people and more about the connection that you have with sports than it does who wins and who loses on a given day. Well, you're right. It's about memories, and that's a great memory with your dad and all that. I mean, that's, that's a cool story that I've been following, so that's, uh, that's very cool what the, you know, what the Orioles did uh, you know, with your dad. So let's talk about Phil for a second. John Dell's with us here, Winston-Salem Journal. He's on Twitter at John Dell WSJ. What surprised you the most about what Phil was able to do on this just terror of a golf course? Well, before I start on that, I do have to plug uh, my brother, who's a golf pro, lives uh, in Illinois. He put twenty bucks down on Phil Mickelson and won fifty six hundred dollars. <laughs> so he uh, he knew something that the rest of us, my brother Steve, knew a little something. But cool. no, I, you know what he did was just amazing because, like like you were talking earlier, everybody just thought he was going to fold because that's kind of been you know fifty year olds aren't supposed to win major championships and. You know, he just, it was just something about it as you're watching it, like, wow, he's, he's hanging in there. I, I didn't even want to watch the front nine. I wanted to wait because I didn't want to be disappointed. And sure enough, he just kept, you know, kept grinding it out. And it just kind of goes to show that, you know, golf is a funny game and you can play it at any age. And, you know, him hitting 366 yard drives is, is unbelievable. But just, the, you know, the poise he showed is something that you really haven't ever seen from him, even when he did win his majors before. So I just think it was a, it's a cool story, um, and it's just something that you're going to remember where you were. I mean, I think there's a Mount Rushmore right now with three of these, and that's Jack's 86 Masters, Tiger's you know 19 win, you know his win in 2019 at the Masters, and now this one. And you know maybe the fourth one on that Mount Rushmore will be when Tiger, if Tiger comes back and wins again, who knows. Yeah, do you think we're headed, after watching that scene on 18 and seeing that the Panthers are expected to be at full capacity this year at games, do you think we're headed towards full capacity at the Wyndham Championship? I think so. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be up to the PGA Tour, I think. In the you know, I've been kind of talking to the guys over at the, at the Wyndham. I know the Winston-Salem Open here in Winston, they're going to have full capacity. 
I just think, like you were talking about the security at, at Kiowa, I think they've forgotten it's been so long on how to control no how, how to control fans and how many security you need. They're going to have to brush up on what they're supposed to be doing. But I think we're heading that way, and uh, you know, I think it's going to be you know good for everybody. Just you know, just for what we've gone through for the last you know year and a half. I just think uh, you know we're due, and I think it was it, it really looked more normal as anything out there at you know at, at Kiowa. Um, you know, especially yesterday. What's the craziest gallery you've ever seen? Because Phil said after his round, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Well, I mean, I know when Tiger won at the, uh, I think it was in Atlanta, um, you know, they, they did the kind of the same thing. And he was, you know, it was like he was the emperor and all these fans were coming up behind him. Um, you know, it, it's just so cool when that happens, when you see those fans kind of file in after, um, after the, you know, cause they're the, they're the final two, some on the course and to let them kind of come behind like that. It's good. It's good theater. It's good TV. I don't know if it would have been good to be right in the middle of that mosh pit, but <laughs> Hey, you know, if I was there, maybe it, it would have been fun to write about, but I, I, you know, it's just, I just think that those are cool scenes in golf. As long as, you know, it doesn't get too out of control. Like you know, Phil makes his last putt and they, and they try and pounce on him. But it uh, those, those kind of scenes are are much needed, especially now. Find the story, the full story. John Dell experienced with Phil Mickelson at journalnow.com. Follow John on Twitter as well. And uh, John, the next time you're with us, I'm sure we're going to be edging closer to football season, Wake Forest football, and everything else. I appreciate you spending the time with us as always today, though. Sounds good, Josh. You guys have a good week. You got it. You too. That is John Dell. Starting our week off the right way. Looking at tonight's slate, Robert, what most intrigues you on the off day between Game 4 and Game 5 for the Carolina Hurricanes when you have the Heat facing Milwaukee tonight, 730 TNT, Portland, Denver, that is a 10 o'clock tip to close things out and you've got five NHL games talking about a game five and a 2-2 series tie between Pittsburgh and the Islanders it's a game three between Toronto and Montreal crazy enough you rarely see this but since the Canadian division started so late Edmonton and Winnipeg they played yesterday and they're playing again today back-to-back days Winnipeg they were trailing four to one in the third period of that game last night Three goals scored in the final eight and a half minutes to force overtime, and Winnipeg ended up winning in the extra session. They're up three games to nothing, a chance to finish things out the night, so they've quickly caught up with schedule. Toronto and Montreal, as I mentioned, 1-1 series tied. That's the game three. Tampa Bay looking to close out Florida. In Sunrise, they're up three games to one. The defending champs are Vegas, tied for the best record in hockey in the regular season, looking to close out Minnesota on their home ice as well. That's a 10-30 puck drop, Vegas and Minnesota. I strike it. Uh, I think you're probably most interested in the basketball matchups. For me, out of those two, I think it's Portland and Denver, but are you behind Miami and Milwaukee? I don't know, man. That game was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the Bucks heat first game, and I, I'm also in on the Blazers. I think tonight's going to be a lot of fun basketball for us. I, I have some thoughts on the Miami Heat after watching that thrilling game, Chris Middleton hitting the shot at the very end to win it. Great end of 
regulation play by Jimmy Butler. Just awareness of the clock, getting to the rim and tying the game up. That was great. I'll tell you who, after one game, which again, I acknowledge, is just one game in a best of seven series in the NBA. I'll tell you what I'm convinced is real and what I'm convinced isn't in addition to telling you what Phil's win might mean for Tiger Woods as well. Next on The Drive. Ding, ding, boys. School's in session. Let's go, man. Back to The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Barbara Streisand. Robert, I'm going to be interested to know what you think about these grades. Going to be some controversy here where we grade things A through F. I'm feeling pretty good about my chances in Out Precise the Geist with Brian Geisiger a little bit later on. But enough talking about later. Let's get to now. It's time for Graham's Grades. Every week is a test for your favorite sports teams. We don't need no passed the test. If one of y'all says some silly ass name. Who dropped the ball? I don't know. Josh Graham has the answers. I think you're very condescending and a know-it-all. Hey, teacher, leave kids alone. Time for Graham's Grades. I like to start with the good. Even though when someone asks me, do you want the good news or the bad news first, I always say the bad news. But for this segment's purposes... We start with the grade that we all aspire to get, or at least we did back when we cared about grades. A. Brett Pesci this weekend. Robert, hockey games are 60 minutes long. The Carolina Hurricanes, in back-to-back games, played multiple overtimes that ended with Nashville wins. And while that's not good... And we want to keep the vibes good around here. Brett Pesci was awesome this weekend. He deserves an A-plus grade because in two games, given that Jacob Slavin's been out of the lineup and we really hope he's going to be available for Carolina tomorrow night for an important game five, Pesci played 80 minutes in the last two games. His average, I think, of the regular season floated between 24 to 26, maybe 27 minutes. He played 40 on Friday night, 39-plus yesterday, 80 minutes of the last two games, including a a two-and-a-half-minute shift in overtime yesterday, the first OT. He had the game tying goal in the final three minutes of the third period on Friday night. Pesci was amazing this weekend. I really would have loved to see both Pesci and Alex Nedeljkovic's efforts rewarded this weekend. Unfortunately, they were not. Playoff hockey can be cruel sometimes. Game 5 is set for 8 o'clock tomorrow night. B. Rooftop bars when done right. Robert, I love rooftop bars. This tends to be a debate between people that live... See, I always feel like the triad is stuck in the middle between this debate between City Slick Slickers in Raleigh and also in Charlotte, which which is the better city. 
The triad's like, we got a little bit of everything here. We're cool. You guys can duke this out in terms of the pro sports markets who might be a little bit stronger. What Raleigh natives make fun of Charlotte natives for, oh, you guys just got your rooftop bars over there. Oh, that's cool. You guys love your breweries over there in the triangle. I think rooftop bars are a B, Robert, when they're done really well. Give, as a perfect example, Saturday, I went to 113 Brewery or 113 Brew House in Greensboro, right downtown. And it was awesome. You had two or three different places on the rooftop you could get a beer from instead of just one place where it becomes incredibly crowded. I'm looking at you, Barpina, in downtown Winston-Salem. Rooftop bars. I'm about them. Where do you stand? It really doesn't matter to me one way or the other, whether it's on a rooftop. I can get down with a rooftop bar or just a little dive. Either way is cool with me. You don't prefer one or the other? Uh, Not really, but I mean, I probably wouldn't pick rooftop bar if I had to choose between the two. Yeah, you prefer the dive? I just being able to like, I like being able to walk out and not have to go upstairs or in an elevator or whatever gets you to that rooftop bar. Seems like a, a trivial thing to do when you've been drinking. Did we ever figure out what the name of that bar in Winston? Silver Moon was? Saloon. Silver Moon Saloon. Visited that for the first time. I've lived here for three years and had never been there before. That changed during the first overtime session on Friday night. C. Kiowa Island Security. Several mistakes were made here on the 18th hole. Off the tee, Phil Mickelson shoots one left that goes into the gallery. And usually, especially when you talk about major championships, they do such a great job of keeping the golfer detached from the people in the stands or in the gallery. It almost seemed like this security crew was not accustomed to having fans at the golf course. Maybe that's due to COVID. Because after Phil hit his approach shot, he gets mobbed. And these officers, I like to think, see this happening. Don't do anything initially. And Phil's just looking at them. He doesn't want to be the jerk because these fans are all rooting for Phil. But also, don't touch the golfer while he's trying to win a major championship. It's 18. He's 50 years old. Let's not take any chances here. And then, as they're approaching the 18th green, sometimes things will become close-ended when both the golfers are already on the green trying to putt and finish things out. You will close in the green. All the fans wanting to see the champion crown. But the thing that they somehow messed up yesterday was losing contain on the gallery before Phil and Brooks were able to get to the 18th green. So Phil and Brooks both had to walk through this mob Apparently, Brooks Kepka getting nicked up while trying to do so. And while it was great television, it was awkward, it was clunky. The Kiowa Island security 
the folks down there, somebody's going to get yelled at. Somebody is going to get in trouble as a result of this. Somebody very well could lose their job based on what happened there. The reason why it's a C and not lower than that is because it was a lot of fun to watch. And I've missed fans so damn much that I kind of appreciated it as it was happening. D. Late lane mergers on I-40. I thought about this this morning, Robert. This might be my biggest pet peeve on the road. When there's this long line of people in the left lane, or it could be the right lane, and cars are just whipping past in the other lane, then have to merge, I hate those people with a passion. It seems like people are bigger jerks in cars than they would be in person because you are a bit anonymous when you're out on the road. You could be a bleephole and nobody knows you're a bleephole because you're just riding in a car, getting where you need to go. But I was cursing out people as they were passing me on Business 40 today, trying to get to Kernersville to our studios, sitting there in traffic, which you already know I hate so much. People trying to pass, and then this guy tried to merge in when I had sit and waited for five to ten minutes to get to that point. I didn't let two straight cars get in as a result. Sorry, you guys need to know you are jerks by what you did here. Big pet peeve of mine. Uh, so this is where they were cutting trees coming into Kernersville, I guess. Hey, the same thing happened to me this morning. And I, I, it drives me, because when I see it, and you're like, oh, everybody's stopping on the left side. Let me get in the line. Everybody slowly get in the line. Get to the back of it. I, I want to know what makes people get into the right lane, and they're like, oh, I'm going like, to drive. What do you think's happening I'm going to drive here? all the way to the front of this bad boy. I, I honestly think I just figured it out. People, if if you tried to do that in a movie line, hey, we're all in line to go to this movie, we'll all look at you and say, dude, what are you doing? You're a jerk. You, with the glasses. You, with that sweatshirt. You, with the tank top. You're a jerk, and we know. What's your name? It's harder to escape that. If you're in your car, you can have tinted windows and be anonymous. Hey, I'll be a jerk right now, and I know I'm being a jerk, but no one's going to know it's me being a jerk, and I'm going to get where I need to go quicker. I still, I don't let them in if they were being jerks, but if it's like they're on the outside, I will let them in because by not letting them in, you're just slowing everybody up anyway. So I generally just let them in unless it is somebody who's like skirted all the way up to the front of the I line. legitimately got so mad, Robert, I needed comfort food. So I got off on the Kernersville exit and I got cookout and I listened to your advice. I wanted to see what, what, it, what it was about. I'm usually a big double burger tray guy. I got the regular burger, and you're absolutely right, 100% Robert. 100% bigger. It's the same you. amount of burger as you get with the big double burger. What a scam that is. You don't need to go with the regular burger or the double burger. It's a scam. It's the same amount of meat. If you like biting into something and feeling the meat, go go the single patty. I don't need the music, but hit me with the F. I'll go acapella here like Eminem at the end of 8 Mile. F. I'll still get you the music, too. Tiger Phil comparisons. Just not necessary. Comparing Tiger's win in 19 to what Phil did yesterday, it's like comparing a beautiful woman to the most attractive supermodel out there. If you say that she's not the supermodel, it sounds like you're diminishing her when in reality, nobody is the supermodel. 
you could still be great and you could still be beautiful. You could still be awesome without being the most beautiful supermodel Margot Robbie in the world, whoever. That's how I felt yesterday. It's going to seem like a shot when I say, eh, Phil Mickelson, it's a difficult golf course, but who is your best competition? Brooks Kepka coming off the knee injury? Look at all this great competition that Tiger dealt with in 19. And how big your celebrity is and how big your comeback story was, Tiger, it's a lot greater of a comeback story. So spare me more difficult course. Spare me him being older. The Tiger story is the greatest golf story I've covered. I think in my entire career. So I'm just not interested in having that debate today because it seems like you're minimizing Phil Mickelson. And that's been the grades this week. Real talky, but not real listening. This is The Drive with Josh Graham on Sports Hub Triad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brian Geisinger now joins us. Our resident hoops nerd from accsports.com. I'll try to out-precise the guys in a bit. I think we had a few disagreements with what we thought about the first-round series in the NBA playoffs. I do have a rule, don't overreact to Game 1 in a best-of-seven series. But I do think we're probably on different pages when we look at the Lakers and the Heat. You like the Heat to beat Milwaukee in a best of seven, right? Uh, so it's funny you bring this up um, because I too was thinking about this after the weekend game between Milwaukee and Miami. You never want to overreact in a best of seven series to just one game, right? Like you just said, it can be, there's still some noise that can be involved and stuff could switch real quickly. But I do think one game can also provide you some insight into what did you not do a good enough job sort of like thinking about the series ahead of time. Um, And what I think I really sort of missed or underestimated was what Milwaukee does best defensively with Giannis, with Brooke Lopez, taking away the paint and making it really difficult to score, you know, 15 feet and in, or the closer you get, the tougher it gets. Miami's two best players, Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo, they do all their damage there. And Bam's face-up game is way better, and he can really pass, and Jimmy gets the line a lot. So there's still stuff those guys can do. But the money areas on the court for those guys to score are kind of getting swallowed up by two very, very good rim protectors. So I'm worried about that if I'm a Miami fan, knowing – that you really need to get more out of the Goran Dragic, the Kendrick Nunn, and the Tyler Hero triumvirate as your, like, primary guards, right? right? Hero was really bad in game one. Awful. Um, Dragic has been coming on recently, but guess what? The Milwaukee has (laughs) Drew Holiday guarding at the point of attack, and he was awesome defensively in the first game. Um, And that's an area... For Milwaukee to lose the three-point battle that much, and some of that they're they're punting on, right? Because of how they want to guard the paint, so some of those Robinson threes are going to be open. But for them to lose the three-point battle like that and still win that game, um, alarm bells should be going off for the Heat. I I would be very concerned if I right. were a Miami fan. And this is why I I felt Milwaukee was going to win the series. It's like how how what percentage would Miami have to shoot from three in order to win this series? I think. During the season, they floated it around 40% from three-point range, and they were exactly 40% from three on 53-point attempts on Saturday. 
and that still wasn't good enough to win the game. They hit 20 of their 53-point tries, and I think a huge part of the difference between last year's series and this year's series is that Milwaukee has Drew Holiday. Now, is he their go-to scorer? Of course not. Is he the guy you're probably going to go to to hit a game-winning shot like Chris Middleton hit Saturday? Probably not. But it is such a vast upgrade over what they had last year with Bledsoe. I just feel a lot more comfortable with him running the point defensively and also on the offensive side of the floor to make sure the ball goes where it needs to go. So I, I think even though the game was close and a lot of people's takeaway might be, oh, this is going to be a seven-game series that's a fight all the way through this thing, I don't see it the same way when I see what Miami had to do just to keep that game close. I think I think Milwaukee might run, might run away with this series. It, it makes you sort of wonder what this Miami team would look like if Victor Oladipo hadn't been hurt. No right? question. Like they, they traded for him at the deadline, and this is a series that he was brought in to help them with, to give him a guy that could run high pick and roll and, and could could score and get to a pull-up game and enforce rotations and, and drag guys away from the hoop so then, you know, Bam would, would, would have more room to roam or whatever. And uh, and you also got to remember, in that trade, they gave up Kelly Olynyk, And so now when Bam sits, and he doesn't sit often. I mean, Bam plays a lot. Um, you know, they're playing Dwayne Dedman at their backup center. And all of a sudden, like, Miami, those 12, 10, 12 minutes a game that Dwayne Dedman plays, it's like, you know, it's fine in the regular season in a playoff series against the Bucks. Dead minutes. It's, uh, it's a problem. Yeah, it's a big problem. Dead minutes, dead men minutes. I guess that there works. Brian Geisinger's with us here. Yeah, I'm sorry. On Twitter, <laughs> at Guys underscore Bird, you can follow him on Twitter. Let's get to the Lakers because this is not an overreaction to game one. I said this at this time last week. I said it after watching it in the play-in game. I don't think this Laker team is as prepared for the playoffs as – last year's team was I think one thing that doesn't get talked about enough with the bubble is how big of a deal it was for older teams not having to travel and the Lakers are the oldest team in the NBA coming off the shortest offseason perhaps in the history of the NBA not a good situation to be in from that regard but also the role players Danny Green uh, Dwight Howard, Rondo from last year, those guys have, have been in deep playoff runs. Two out of the three had already won titles. Andre Drummond, how far did he advance with the Pistons? And we saw what Harrell was last year with the Clippers, and Schroeder I don't think was absolutely cooking people with OKC in Atlanta. So I think the age is starting to become noticeable for them, and AD and LeBron, it's clear they're not healthy LeBron's not attacking people the way that he normally does. It seems like he doesn't trust that ankle. And A.D. Haberstroh brought this stat up, the weight guy, uh, who is the ultimate stats guy for Metal Art Media now. He said that since returning from the Achilles injury, A.D. is 10 of 54 from three-point range. That's not even 20%. And many of those shots have been missed short. When you add all this up and you're facing a young, excited, bouncy team like the Phoenix Suns, that were so good during the regular season and seemed to be so balanced and well put together, I I think this is a shell of last year's Lakers team, and I think the Lakers are going to go down in this series. What do you think? I just can't. I, I Everything you said is, like, I'm with you, but it's just, like, I can't. Until LeBron is, like, officially eliminated, you know, it's just, like, he's still a terrifying force. Now, a couple points. 
you know, LeBron does not get to the rim quite like he used to. Now he's still amazing. Like he's still like in like the 98th percentile in the league, you know, but I For think 39, th- 39% of his attempts this season were at the rim. You know, most years that's high forties. That's it. That's in some years he's been above 50% of his shots have come at the rim. So that's way down. Um, Davis, the other, the other bubble factor that I've talked about a lot since last fall and I really don't think you see it too much outside of sort of like niche corners of basketball, Twitter or whatever, or, or, or internet basketball fandom is like, what did the bubble do to some of these guys shooting percentages, right? Not just in terms of like, were they maybe more rested and there's less travel, but just like the backdrop, you were playing in a shooter's paradise down in the bubble. And Anthony Davis shot well above his career averages from the mid range, right? And he has not shot well from the mid-range this season before or after his injuries. Like, it just hasn't been there. Um, and that's a big part of L.A.'s offense. I don't think L.A. still knows what they want to do, like, with their center rotation. Like, you know, Gasol doesn't play. They go to Drummond. They do some Harrell. And, like, those lineups are just – they're going to be problematic in certain matchups. What do you think and their best be five little, is? What do you think the Lakers' best it, five is right now? The, the best five is definitely Davis at center. Davis, LeBron, Schroeder, Caldwell Pope, and probably Caruso or Kuzma. Wow. I would so say the small would, would lineup you like the best. Well, yeah, definitely. But like, and look, the AD at center lineups have been really, really good for two years now. But like, that's supposed to be their panacea. They went to it for 14 minutes against Phoenix, and they were minus seven in those minutes. Now that doesn't mean much just yet but like in those seven minutes Davis 0 of 2 shooting threes like the the Lakers overall 2 of 12 on threes in those minutes now you make a couple of those threes and that makes the numbers look a little bit different but Phoenix was dialed in man they were ready to play this game and for them to play that well while Chris Paul was out there playing with one freaking arm was incredible Booker you knew this guy was built for the postseason like physically mentally he's there man he was awesome Bridges, the hustle plays, Aiton was locked in. I, I just could not be more impressed with how prepared they were for this game, how they flew around defensively. Um, but assuming, like, if you're Phoenix, though, they, they can't win this series if Chris is going to be like that the whole time, right? Now, there was some reporting out of Phoenix today that said he got a stinger, and game two, he'd be, you know, close to normal or he'd be good or whatever. They, Phoenix has to have the Chris Paul shot making and playmaking. Like, they can't win with him being a complete nothing on offense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, but if he, if he can get back to like the all NBA point God version that we saw all season, then maybe Phoenix really does have a, have the chance to, to, to win this thing. How distraught was Brian Geisinger sitting in his house or apartment watching oh CP three on the floor? Were you uh, in tears? Were you like needing a blanket of some sort? Yeah. Maybe a uh, beer. I, I could have used a hug. That's for sure. I like was taking very detailed notes of the, of all the games. And I basically just stopped taking notes once he got hurt and just sort of sat there glaring at the screen thinking, here we go again. Um, so to see him come back felt good, but obviously he was like, you know, he was the shit when he shot the ball, he was literally just throwing it at the hoop. So um, that was not very reassuring. Uh, so no, I was not in a good place uh, mentally, um, and really won't be until I see him like, you know, hit a jumper in game two, hopefully Robert let's play out precise. The guys. 
Brian Geisinger is a basketball genius. Josh Graham, uh, is not. I'm smart, you're dumb. I'm big, you're little. I'm right, you're wrong. Listen as Brian launches half-court shots and Josh, well, double dribbles all over himself. And there's nothing you can do about it. Get off the bench and try to out-precise the guys. Guys, the playoffs are here. They did not disappoint, so obviously that's what we're going to dive into today. Knock on wood, it's been two days. I know, but I mean, it's been a lot of fun. Oh, I had play-in tournament too, I guess. I, I enjoy, yeah. I've enjoyed the playoffs so far. It's 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 totally different from the regular season. There's a palpable difference, but either way, we're jumping in here with the Nets. Uh, they won their first game of the series against Boston, and with their starting three intact, how many points did they combine for? How many points did KD, Kyrie, and Harden combine for in their win over the Celtics? I think I heard uh, it on the broadcast. I got the number written down. I don't know if it's right. All right. Boy, they played. This was a D-minus game from the Nets, and they still won with relative ease. Uh, we'll see how things go in the second round if they end up getting Milwaukee. Um, I'll go 80 points combined. I've got 79 written down. I swear, Robert, it's written right here. I mean, I, there's no reason you should lie about that because he boxed you out. But the three combined for 82. Oh, come on, man. KD yes. with 32, Kyrie with 29, and Harden Unbelievable. with 21. Someone hit a three in the last minute after they said the stat. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you turned it off too early. It's why you stay to the end, Josh. It's why you stay to the end. All right, second one here. Trey Young played the villain against the Knicks, but according to the plus-minus, Bogdan Bogdanovich was the MVP of that night. What was his plus-minus? Okay. He's been so good this year. By the way, I'm, I'm doing the ice tray uh, shake in my in my office at my house right now <laughs> as I answer this question. Um, I'll say... I'll say plus 15 for Bogdanovich. Which is crazy, right? I mean, talk a little bit about plus and minus and how we even get these scores. Just uh, while he was on the court, Atlanta outscored uh, New York by X number of points, whatever that value is, which if it's if it's a lot, it's pretty impressive considering they only won this game by two points. So it'll let you know in the few minutes that Bogdanovich wasn't on the court, that Atlanta was probably outscored by a by a decent margin. He almost boxed me out again. I got plus seventeen. Plus seventeen. Well, you would be right with that. He had plus seventeen. Yeah. In that game. Let's go. See, you could tell I'm watching more of the games now. Like BG watches more regular season hoops than anybody I know. I'm catching maybe like two or three games a week. He's probably catching two dozen. Now that the playoffs are here, I feel like I got a better shot at some of these. Well, let's see. It's coming down to the wire kind of like it did for the Heat and the Bucks. And Chris Middleton hit a game winner to put the Bucks up 1-0 on the Heat. How many game-winning buzzer beaters does Chris have? So that Heat shot does not count. Strictly buzzer beaters. How many buzzer beater game winners does Chris Middleton have? And while you guys are thinking about that, I had some fun facts for buzzer beaters uh, in the NBA. I love buzzer now are beaters. We, are we talking about, like, for his career in the playoffs or his career in the regular season his plus en- the playoffs? Do you know? His entire career. As far as I'm concerned, it, it was the regular season. He does okay. not have any in the playoffs. I will tell okay. you that. And this, is so, my, and this is my argument always against the Elam ending for anything. You can never have a buzzer beater with the Elam ending. Like, yeah, you won with the game-winning shot, but working against the timer, 
it would be very difficult. You can't. Do yeah, that. there's there, there's a trade off. I like the Elam ending in some circumstances, All-Star but I'm game. not like ready. I'm not ready to like have it. You know, be like the the thing that we use in the playoffs or the NCAA tournament or whatever. Um. All right, I'll say I'm shooting in the dark here, man. I'll say. Uh, whew, I'll say eight, eight buzzer beaters. I've got two game winners. I've got two written down, so. If it's five, I don't know what happens here. But, Robert, what do you got? It is five. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So, I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn. You can pull something randomly? I I, I want you to tell me who has the most buzzer beater winners in the NBA. Current. Current. Who? I mean, the... who has the most buzzer beater winners, winning shots in the NBA? I saw this earlier. Whoa. Let me think on this for a second because there are about five different players who yeah. have popped up in my head. Yeah, there's a few names that come to mind very quickly. I got one. I got mine written down. Yeah. All right. I'm going to – oh, boy. All right. I'm going to go with one – Man, oh, um, hell, I'll go with Chris Paul. How about that? I got Kevin Durant. Ooh, all right. Well, guys, we're going to end in a tie today. It's Michael Jordan with nine. You said Ah. active. Oh, I meant meant the whole, uh, that's my fault. That's my fault. (laughs) Well, active, you would also both be wrong because it's LeBron James. Ah, yeah. I thought about putting LeBron there. Uh, But my fun fact, my fun fact for this was Joe Johnson has more buzzer beater winners than LeBron does. He has eight. I saw Joe. LeBron has seven. How about I ask Brian Geisiger one more question while you try to come up with a tiebreaker so we don't feel like we're kissing our sister well, on the way where, out. Where did, Josh, where did Joe Johnson go to college? Oh. One and done. Was he an ACC guy? Uh, he was not. Okay, I don't know where he went to school then. He went to Arkansas. Okay, Arkansas guy. Okay. Yeah, Razorback. Okay. Did was Nolan Richardson still around when that happened? Probably not. I I don't think so. No. Okay. Uh, I got a question for you. All right. Roof, shoot. Roof, rooftop bar or dive bar? What do you prefer? Dive bar. Although I do like a, I do like a rooftop bar. But yeah, that's give me a dive bar any day any day of the week. Uh, although like yeah, I'm not like opposed to a, to a rooftop scenic. The key either. to a good rooftop bar, as I figured out this weekend at 113th Brew House in Greensboro, is that you need multiple bars on the rooftop to have it be su- sufficient. I don't want to be standing around waiting like you would in a dive bar yeah. on the rooftop. <laughs> yeah. Take notes, yeah. Barpina and Winston Salem. That needs to be an upgrade there, in my humble opinion. This is me stalling for Robert to come up with one more question <laughs> before we take it to the house. Robert, do you have something? I will in... Uh, how many threes did Mello hit? There we go. Ooh. Which Mello? LaMelo or Carmelo? <laughs> yeah. Well, Unfortunately, I mean, LaMelo's at home. Seen... Yeah, <laughs> so. that's, a, that, that's an unfortunate truth. Um, I'll say five threes. I've got six. Carmelo hit four. No! Oh! Damn it! Yes. They were all in the first half, too. Get the, get your work done early, Carmelo. I like this it. This game, I hate it. 
Yeah. BG, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, sounds good, guys. Have a good one. Uh, on Twitter at bguys underscore bird. Damn it.